Chapter Two of From the Deep Woods to Civilization by Charles A. Eastman, Ohiesa. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two: My First School Days. It was less than a month since I had been a rover and a hunter in the Manitoba wilderness, with no thought save those which concern the most free and natural life of an Indian. Now I found myself standing near a rude log cabin on the edge of a narrow strip of timber, overlooking the fertile basin of the Big Sioux River. As I gazed over the rolling prairie land, all I could see was that it met the sky at the horizon line. It seemed to me vast and vague and endless, as was my conception of the new trail which I had taken and my dream of the far-off goal. My father's farm of a hundred sixty acres, which he had taken up and improved under the United States homestead laws, lay along the north bank of the river. The nearest neighbor lived a mile away, and all had flourishing fields of wheat, Indian corn, and potatoes. Some two miles distant, where the Big Sioux doubled upon itself in a swinging loop, rose the mission church and schoolhouse, the only frame building within forty miles. Our herd of ponies was loose upon the prairie, and it was my first task each morning to bring them into the log corral. On this particular morning I lingered, finding some of them, like myself, who loved their freedom too well and would not come in. The man who had built the cabin, it was his first house and therefore he was proud of it, was tall and manly-looking. He stood in front of his pioneer home with a resolute face. He had been accustomed to the buffalo-skin teepee all his life, until he opposed the white man and was defeated and made a prisoner of war at Davenport, Iowa. It was because of his meditations during those four years in a military prison that he had severed himself from his tribe and taken up a homestead. He declared that he would never join in another Indian outbreak, but would work with his hands for the rest of his life. "'I have hunted every day,' he said for the support of my family. I sometimes chase the deer all day. One must work, and work hard, whether chasing the deer or planting corn. After all, the corn planting is the sure provision. These were my father's new views, and in this radical change of life he had persuaded a few other families to join him. They formed a little colony at Flandreau on the Big Sioux River. To be sure, his beginnings in civilization had not been attended with all the success that he had hoped for. One year the crops had been devoured by grasshoppers, and another year ruined by drought, but he was still satisfied that there was no alternative for the Indian. He was now anxious to have his boys learn the English language and something about books, for he could see that these were the bow and arrows of the white man. Ohiesa called my father, and I obeyed the call. It is time for you to go to school, my son, he said with his usual air of decision. We had spoken of the matter more than once, yet it seemed hard when it came to the actual undertaking. I remember quite well how I felt as I stood there with eyes fixed upon the ground. And what am I to do at the school? I asked finally with much embarrassment. You will be taught the language of the white man, and also how to count your money and tell the prices of your horses and of your furs. The white teacher will first teach you the signs by which you can make out the words on their books. They call them A, B, C, and so forth. Old as I am, I have learned some of them. 
The matter having been thus far explained, I was soon on my way to the little mission school, two miles distant over the prairie. There was no clear idea in my mind as to what I had to do, but as I galloped along the road I turned over and over what my father had said, and the more I thought of it, the less I was satisfied. Finally I said aloud, Why do we need a sign language when we can both hear and talk? and unconsciously I pulled out the lariat, and the pony came to a stop. I suppose I was half curious, and half in dread about this learning white men's ways. Meanwhile the pony had begun to graze. While thus absorbed in thought, I was suddenly startled by the yells of two other Indian boys, and the noise of their pony's hoofs. I pulled the pony's head up just as the two strangers also pulled up, and stopped their panting ponies at my side. They stared at me for a minute, while I looked at them out of the corners of my eyes. "'Where are you going? Are you going to our school?' volunteered one of the boys at last. To this I replied timidly, "'My father told me to go to a place where the white men's ways are taught, and to learn the sign language.' "'That's good. We are going there, too. Come on, Red Feather, let's try another race. I think if we had not stopped, my pony would have outrun yours.' "'Will you race with us?' he continued, addressing me, and we all started our ponies at full speed. I soon saw that the two strange boys were riding erect and soldier-like. "'That must be because they have been taught to be like the white man,' I thought. I allowed my pony a free start and leaned forward until the animal drew deep breaths, then I slid back and laid my head against the pony's shoulder at the same time raising my quirt, and he leaped forward with a will. I yelled as I passed the other boys, and pulled up when I reached the crossing. The others stopped, too, and surveyed pony and rider from head to foot, as if they had never seen us before. "'You have a fast pony. Did you bring him back with you from Canada?' Redfeather asked. "'I think you are the son of many lightnings, whom he brought home the other day,' the boy added." Yes, this is my own pony. My uncle in Canada always used him to chase the buffalo, and he has ridden him in many battles. I spoke with considerable pride. Well, as there are no more buffalo to chase now, your pony will have to pull the plow like the rest. But if you ride him to school, you can join in the races. On the holy days the young men race horses, too. Red Feather and Whitefish spoke both together, while I listened attentively, for everything was strange to me. "'What do you mean by the holy days?' I asked. "'Well, that's another of the white people's customs. Every seventh day they call a holy day, and on that day they go to a holy house where they pray to their great mystery. They also say that no one should work on that day.' This definition of Sunday and church-going set me to thinking again for I never knew before that there was any difference in the days. But how do you count the days, and how do you know what day to begin with? I inquired. Oh, that's easy. The white men have everything in their books. They know how many days in a year, and they have even divided the day itself into so many equal parts. In fact, they have divided them again and again until they know how many times one can breathe in a day, said Whitefish, with the air of a learned man. That's impossible, I thought, so I shook my head. By this time we had reached the second crossing of the river on whose bank stood the little mission school. 
thirty or forty Indian children stood about, curiously watching the newcomer as we came up the steep bank. I realized for the first time that I was an object of curiosity, and it was not a pleasant feeling. On the other hand, I was considerably interested in the strange appearance of these school children. They all had on some apology for white man's clothing, but their pantaloons belonged neither to the order short nor to the long. Their coats, some of them, met only halfway by the help of long strings. Others were lapped over in front and held on by a string of some sort fastened around the body. Some of their hats were brimless, and others without crowns, while most were fantastically painted. The hair of all the boys was cut short, and in spite of the evidences of great effort to keep it down, it stood erect like porcupine quills. I thought, as I stood on one side, and took a careful observation of the motley gathering, that if I had to look like these boys in order to obtain something of the white man's learning, it was time for me to rebel. The boys played ball and various other games, but I tied my pony to a tree and then walked up to the schoolhouse and stood there as still as if I had been glued to the wall. Presently the teacher came out and rang a bell, and all the children went in, but I waited for some time before entering, and then slid inside and took the seat nearest the door. I felt singularly out of place, and for the twentieth time wished my father had not sent me. When the teacher spoke to me, I had not the slightest idea what he meant, so I did not trouble myself to make any demonstration, for fear of giving offense. Finally he asked in broken Sioux, What is your name? Evidently he had not been among the Indians long, or he would not have asked that question. It takes a tactician and a diplomat to get an Indian to tell his name. The poor man was compelled to give up the attempt and resume his seat on the platform. He then gave some unintelligible directions, and to my great surprise, the pupils in turn held their books open and talked the talk of a strange people. Afterward, the teacher made some curious signs upon a blackboard on the wall, and seemed to ask the children to read them. To me they did not compare in interest with my bird's track and fish-fin studies on the sands. I was something like a wild cub caught overnight, and appearing in the corral next morning with the lambs. I had seen nothing thus far to prove to me the good of civilization. Meanwhile the children grew more familiar, and whispered references were made to the new boy's personal appearance. At last he was called Baby by one of the big boys, but this was not meant for him to hear, so he did not care to hear. He rose silently and walked out. He did not dare to do or say anything in departing. The boys watched him as he led his pony to the river to drink, and then jumped upon his back and started for home at a good pace. They cheered as he started over the hills. Hoo-hoo! Hoo! There goes the long-haired boy! When I was well out of sight of the school, I pulled in my pony and made him walk slowly home. Will going to that place make a man brave and strong? I asked myself. I must tell my father that I cannot stay here. I must go back to my uncle in Canada, who taught me to hunt and shoot and to be a brave man. They might as well try to make a buffalo build houses like a beaver as to teach me to be a white man, I thought. It was growing late when I at last appeared at the cabin. Why, what is the matter? quoth my old grandmother, who had taken a special pride in me as a promising young hunter. 
Really, my face had assumed a look of distress and mental pressure that frightened the superstitious old woman. She held her peace, however, until my father returned. Ah, she said then, I never fully believed in these new manners. The great mystery cannot make a mistake. I say it is against our religion to change the customs that have been practiced by our people ages back, so far back that no one can remember it. Many of the school children have died. You have told me. It is not strange. You have offended him because you have made these children change the ways he has given us. I must know more about this matter before I give my consent. Grandmother had opened her mind in unmistakable terms, and the whole family was listening to her in silence. Then my hard-headed father broke the pause. Here is one Sioux who will sacrifice everything to win the wisdom of the white man. We have now entered upon this life, and there is no going back. Besides, one would be like a hobbled pony without learning, to live like those among whom we must live. During my father's speech my eyes had been fixed upon the burning logs that stood on end in the huge mud chimney in a corner of the cabin. I didn't want to go to that place again, but father's logic was too strong for me, and the next morning I had my long hair cut and started into school in earnest. I obeyed my father's wishes and went regularly to the little day school, but as yet my mind was in darkness. What has all this talk of books to do with hunting, or even with planting corn, I thought. The subject occupied my thoughts more and more, doubtless owing to my father's decided position on the matter, while, on the other hand, my grandmother's view of this new life was not encouraging. I took the situation seriously enough, and I remember I went with it where all my people go when they want light, into the thick woods. I needed counsel, and human counsel did not satisfy me. I had been taught to seek the great mystery in silence, in the deep forest or on the height of the mountain. There were no mountains here, so I retired into the woods. I knew nothing of the white man's religion. I only followed the teaching of my ancestors. When I came back, my heart was strong. I desired to follow the new trail to the end. I knew that, like the little brook, it must lead to larger and larger ones until it became a resistless river, and I shivered to think of it. But again I recalled the teachings of my people, and determined to imitate their undaunted bravery and stoic resignation. However, I was far from having realized the long, tedious years of study and confinement before I could begin to achieve what I had planned. "'You must not fear to work with your hands,' said my father. But if you are able to think strongly and well, that will be a quiver full of arrows for you, my son. All of the white man's children must go to school, but those who study best and longest need not work with their hands after that, for they can work with their minds. You may plough the five acres next the river and see if you can make a straight furrow as well as a straight shot. I set to work with a heavy breaking plough and yoke of oxen but I am sorry to admit that the work was poorly done. It will be better for you to go away to a higher school, advised my father. It appears remarkable to me now that my father, thorough Indian as he was, should have had such deep and sound conceptions of a true civilization. But there is the contrast. My father's mother, whose faith in her people's philosophy and training could not be superseded by any other allegiance. 
To her, such a life as we lead today would be no less than sacrilege. It is not a true life, she often said. It is a sham. I cannot bear to see my boy live a made-up life. Ah, grandmother, you had forgotten one of the first principles of your own teaching. Namely, when you see a new trail or a footprint that you do not know, follow it to the point of knowing. All I want to say to you, the old grandmother seems to answer, is this. Do not get lost on this new trail. I find, said my father to me, that the white man has a well-grounded religion, and teaches his children the same virtues that our people taught to theirs. The great mystery has shown to the red and white man alike the good and evil from which to choose. I think the way of the white man is better than ours, because he is able to preserve on paper the things he does not want to forget. He records everything, the sayings of his wise men, the laws enacted by his counselors. I began to be really interested in this curious scheme of living that my father was gradually unfolding to me out of his limited experience. The way of knowledge, he continued, is like our old way in hunting. You begin with a mere trail, a footprint. If you follow that faithfully, it may lead you to a clearer trail, a track, a road. Later on there will be many tracks, crossing and diverging one from the other. Then you must be careful, for success lies in the choice of the right road. You must be doubly careful, for traps will be laid for you, of which the most dangerous is the spirit water, that causes a man to forget his self-respect he added, unwittingly giving to his aged mother material for her argument against civilization. The general effect upon me of these discussions, which were logical enough on the whole, although almost entirely from the outside, was that I became convinced that my father was right. My grandmother had to yield at last, and it was settled that I was to go to school at Santee Agency, Nebraska, where Dr. Alfred L. Riggs was then fairly started in the work of his great mission school, which has turned out some of the best educated Sioux Indians. It was at that time the mecca of the Sioux country, even though Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse were still at large, harassing soldiers and immigrants alike and General Custer had just been placed in military command of the Dakota Territory. End of chapter 2